Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Kelly Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Later in the show, a double dose of local history in Deerfield. It's the 320th anniversary of the Deerfield Raid today, and perhaps our perspective has shifted about the events that happened on that fateful leap day in 170... What was it? Four? Three or four. Yeah, okay. The, ch- the calendar changes in the middle. We get to that. Yeah. We get into the details of the conflict with author James Swanson, who has just released a book on the subject called The Deerfield Massacre, a surprise attack, a forced march, and the fight for survival in early America. And about the nuances of shifting historical perspectives with curators Ray Radigan and Lindsay Kruzlik in Deerfield's Memorial Hall Museum, where pieces of that history can be seen in an exhibit they're updating to correlate with modern perspectives and research. But first, the waters of Capitol Hill become more and more murky. Hey, how are you? Good, and you? Good. I, who, the, who's the guy from, one of the people from WGBH was down here? Yeah, and, and yesterday. Yeah, and EPM too. Yeah, yeah. Matt Abramovitz, yeah, our president. Yeah, like, you met with him? Yeah, that's right. He's, yeah, he's very nice. Did you say nice things about me to him? I did, and he said nice things about you. Oh, good. So that's, you know, <laughs> so like I live you. to work they another really day, do. I suppose. <laughs> Time for our weekly check-in with U.S. Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts, Worcester's own Congressman Jim McGovern. Just yesterday, Congressman, and it looks like you'll be voting on this sometime today, the U.S. going to kick the financial can down the road again. It feels like many American households, the nation itself, is living paycheck to paycheck here. Uh, what's the latest with this stopgap measure and how it will play out for the federal budget and the federal dollars? Yeah, well, this, this place is ridiculous. We agreed on what the budget numbers were months ago. And so all this work should have been done months ago. And because of a small group of right-wing extremists that constantly threatened to oust the Speaker of the House, you know, we, we, we just pushed this off and pushed this off and pushed this off. And meanwhile, all this uncertainty is not good for the economy. It's not good for anybody. We were supposed to have voted on half of the budget this week uh, and to keep that part of the government open for the rest of the year. That's not going to happen. We're going to do a short-term bill that will fund the government for a couple of weeks. And hopefully next week, we will begin with part one of funding the government for the whole year. It's, it's just crazy. And here's the thing. When these bills come to the floor, they will pass overwhelmingly with bipartisan support. These aren't even close calls. Uh, but this is about the MAGA extremists not having the ability to get to yes on anything. They're very good at complaining, but when it comes to finding solutions or getting work done, they just don't want to be there. Another evidence of kicking the can down the road from a different branch of government, the Supreme Court's decision to push the case of Donald Trump and his potential immunity as president of the United States further down the road as well. Rachel Maddow on MSNBC uh, had some chilling ideas about why this might want to happen, where this would then force Donald Trump, if he wins the presidency, to remain president for life in order to not go to prison. What's your take on the Supreme Court's decision to not act on this immunity ruling more swiftly? Yeah, well, I wish they would act more swiftly. I have to believe at the end of the day, they will agree that no individual in this country is above the law, even the president of the United States. But, you know, I think what this means is that the only way to stop Donald Trump is going to be at the ballot box. I mean, we can't rely on the courts. Uh, to do this before the election. People are going to have to do this themselves. Uh, Donald Trump has learned lessons from when he was last president. And the lessons he learned is that he needs to have a vice president that will do whatever he wants him to do or her to do. He needs a a secretary of defense that won't put him ahead of the country. And he needs an attorney general. And as bad as Bill Barr was, he didn't do some of the stuff that Trump wanted him to do. But he will make sure that everybody 
who is on his team, everybody who's in a position of power, will be loyal to him um, and not to our democracy and not to the Constitution. And it is chilling. It, it, it adds even more importance to the November election. We've got a couple of listener questions this week, and you can always send your questions mm-hmm. for us at thefab413 at nepm.org. Tom Luck from Leiden says, I love your program. Oh, thanks, Tom. And I'm interested in hearing from Congressman McGovern about the following. Could you ask him about the possibility of President Biden helping Ukraine by using the technique used by FDR to help the British prior to the attack on Pearl Harbor, the so-called Lend-Lease program? FDR used this workaround to aid the Brits when Congress would not. I know that there may be obstacles to this approach, but I don't know what they are. I hope the congressman could explain. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the obstacles is that since we haven't been funding the government... (laughs) Right. Since, since we, we don't have a budget for this year, our own military equipment is depleted. So the work we're doing right now should have been done last year. There are some issues about supply, what we have right now, number one. Uh, number two, I think Biden's trying to think of creative ways to help the Ukrainians. I mean, this is ridiculous. I mean, Ukraine is down to bullets right now. Putin is crowing because he thinks that he'll be able to um, to invade. And if he does... That's not the end of it. I mean, anybody who thinks that this is it hasn't been reading their history. You know, when I was uh, in Poland a year ago, I mean, the president of Poland, their biggest worry is Putin goes into Ukraine and then is Poland next. So, you know, I I appreciate the question. They are thinking of of creative ways. And we have been, by the way, we have been trying to get them equipment through very creative means. But we need to actually dedicate funding to actually buy more equipment and produce more equipment for them to be able to push Russia back. Another listener question from another regular questioner and a notable activist in the area talking about creative workarounds, but I think is thinking this creative workaround may be less creative. Pocky Wheeland asks, rumor has it that our congressman, Jim McGovern, will introduce a discharge petition, a way to get a piece of legislation around the speaker. Is he using the discharge position to get the war supporting Senate bill passed in the House? What's in this bill, Pocky Whelan says? $90 billion to continue the hopeless, as she says, war in Ukraine, uh, a war both Russia and Ukraine wanted to negotiate years ago that the U.S. blocked, billions for Israel to continue its war crimes, as Pocky Whelan says, and keeps us complicit in them, no money to UNRWA, the U- United Nations Humanitarian Agency, money for Taiwan in case U.S. war contractors want to keep the economy growing and to threaten China. Is it your plan to introduce a discharge petition to get this bill passed in the House? As Pocky Whelan claims, well, I lo- yeah, I, I, I love Pocky, but the yeah, we have a discharge petition option. It's almost impossible to get a bill to the floor by way of a discharge petition without the support of the Speaker of the House. So I, I don't think we will vote on this through a discharge petition. It may be a way to put pressure on the Speaker to get him to act. I, I respectfully disagree with her on Ukraine. I don't think Vladimir Putin wants to negotiate an end what's going on there. He's the one who initiated this attack, a very vicious attack on innocent people in Ukraine. It has been very, very costly. Um, and he's made every indication that he wants to finish the job. So the question for us in the world is whether or not we're going to sit back and let it happen or whether we're going to actually provide Ukraine the assistance it needs. So I, I appreciate that. On the Israel stuff, yeah, I mean, that's, that's part of this package. But the package also includes, you know, a big chunk of humanitarian aid that could be used in Gaza. And the fact of the matter right now is that the, the challenges in Gaza are not just Israel, Israel bombing Gaza, but it's also people starving to death. Um, I get a call from a, a doctor who performed a C-section on a woman uh, without anesthesia because they have no medical supplies. 
So, I mean, we, so we have to, I mean, yeah, none of this is perfect and there are no separate votes on any of this stuff. The Senate has already acted um, and we're going to have to figure out what to do. How I vote on the final package, I have no idea. I'm going to have to wait and weigh all the equities at the end of the, at, at the, end of the day. But I do believe we should support Ukraine. I do believe in providing humanitarian aid. I think there are end rounds around the ban on UNRWA, which I've been assured by the administration that we can figure that out to get necessary aid to the Palestinians. But there's no perfect solution here. But doing nothing in terms of humanitarian aid is just going to exacerbate the problem. I hope, you know, in the next week that there is a ceasefire. And if there is, then we have more options available to us. Uh, but Paki's right, and what is happening in Gaza is horrific. I mean, it is it is beyond the pale. It is tragic, and we need to bring this to an end. It's one of the reasons why I've called for a ceasefire time and time and time and time again. Uh, and I'm continuing to do that. We need to stop the bombing. We need to get humanitarian aid in there. And then we need a long-term solution that not only provides security for Israel, but also provides dignity and self-determination for the Palestinians. That's where we're at. Unclear how it's going to go. But I think we, we have to consider this stuff. We can't just let Ukraine fall. I and mean, that's my view. Speaking of the ceasefire that you've called for, the, in Northampton, there was a somewhat heated and well-attended city council meeting where a ceasefire resolution was presented and ultimately passed by the Northampton City Council. Amherst and their select board will likely on Monday weigh in on another ceasefire resolution in that town. Has the, the Northampton ceasefire resolution, which you know raised the ire of certain Jewish uh, community groups, reached your desk? And what happens with that ceasefire resolution from Northampton through your office now? Well, and it, you know, one is I, I haven't read it. Um, I, I've heard about it. And I'm sure we will reach my desk. And no, I mean, it, I, I, it, it matters to me. You know, the Northampton uh, City Council deliberated on this and passed the resolution. These are important things. This is the way our democracy is supposed to work. We still have a democracy where people can say things and, you know, they can weigh in. Whether that's the case after November is another story. But right now, yeah, no, it matters to me. And I care, I care very deeply about this issue. Um, and I have been meeting with leaders in the Arab community, the Muslim community. I've been speaking at synagogues all throughout my district, listening to what people have to say. And by the way, the opinions of people don't fall into nice, neat categories. There are people who look at everything as black and white, and there are people who understand that there are nuances here. But everybody that I've talked to seems committed to wanting to see an end to this violence. And so I, I look forward to reading the Northampton resolution. Um, I appreciate their deliberation on this, and it, and it matters to me. And you can hear more about the Amherst resolution on Monday show, and we'll be talking to some of those folks behind that resolution. This is a little bit into the how the sausage gets made, but I thought it was fascinating, U.S. Congressman Jim McGovern. Uh, according to Politico, House staffers are rejoicing about a major step to streamline how bills get fired. Gone are the days of junior aides trudging from door to door trying to get other offices to co-sponsor legislation. Now members can sign on with the click of a button. So... The Congress has been using door-to-door technology to try to get yeah. things done. Is that why things move so yeah. slowly in Congress instead of, you know, we got Facebook. You can just like a thing. And now maybe you're co-sponsor. Yeah, right. Yeah. No, I mean, we, 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 it takes a little while longer for anything to change um, in, this, uh, in this body. But that's not the reason why things are moving so slowly. Things are moving so slowly is because we have a group of incompetent people running the House of Representatives. They don't believe in compromise. I look at I, I we have a Republican controlled House by a narrow margin, a democratically controlled Senate by a narrow margin, and a Democrat in the White House. 
So I know I'm not going to get everything I want, but they should know that they're not going to get everything they want. But is this and new so, streamlined process going to make it at least easier or faster to get things done in some well, it ways? Makes it, 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 it makes it easier, but I mean, it, clicking your name on as a co-sponsor versus, get, versus getting a sign-on, I mean, what is it? That's it, it, probably what saves you 15 minutes. But, okay. it, but that, that's not going to move legislation quicker. <laughs> what moves legislation more quickly is a rules committee that works um, and a speaker that wants to schedule things. And that's it. Um, and this is the least productive Congress in my lifetime, if not in history. U.S. Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts joins us every Thursday. You can ask questions of the congressman like Tom Luck from Leiden did, like Pocky Whelan did, by emailing those questions to us here at thefab413 at nepm.org. And I'll ask them on your behalf. Thanks as always, Congressman. All the best. Thanks. A double dose of local history this leap day comes next. Starting with author James Swanson, who can give us more details of what happened that fateful night 320 years ago at the Deerfield Raid. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, homegrown in Hatfield, Massachusetts, and providing energy savings for their customers for over 10 years. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Today is the anniversary of the raid on Deerfield and the Deerfield Massacre, a surprise attack, a forced march, and the fight for survival in early America is a new book by historian James L. Swanson, out this week just in time for that 320th anniversary of this piece of local history. James Swanson is the New York Times bestselling and Edgar Award-winning author of Manhunt, the 12-day chase for Lincoln's killer. And this Sunday at 2 p.m., in conjunction with the Becomtuck Valley Memorial Association, a free lecture and book signing by this renowned author and scholar. James Swanson in Deerfield Academy's Hess Auditorium. Thank you so much, James Swanson, for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, later in the show, we're going to go to uh, Memorial Hall in historic Deerfield. So we're going to see some of the artifacts that remain from this event that occurred 320 years ago. Including the door. The door. That is featured on the cover of your book as well. Uh, if you're from the 413, from the Deerfield area, this is a story that you've probably heard of before. But maybe if you're outside of that area, not as well known a piece of history, that's probably the best place where we should start. Tell us about this Deerfield raid, this Deerfield so-called massacre. Well, it happened 320 years ago. A party of maybe 250 French and Indians came down from Canada, a 300-mile march through the snow and ice in the middle of February. Deerfield was not expecting them. They thought the warring season was over, that they were safe through the winter. They didn't have their guard up. They had one man in town guarding me in the palisade. They didn't have guard dogs. They weren't sending out patrols. They were totally vulnerable. And so the Indians and French came into town. They climbed a snowdrift that went almost to the top of the 10-foot wall, and they dropped into the, the fort. And then they began their attack. The first warning of the attack was the attack. They singled out the house of Reverend John Williams first and then attacked all the other houses by surprise. People were woken from their sleep. They weren't ready to fight. They weren't dressed. And so it was really a one-sided combat. And the Indians attacked with war clubs, tomahawks, and flintlock muskets. And it was, it was a slaughter. Fifty people were killed the night of the raid. And then 112 were taken captive. And they were marched to Canada on a 300-mile return march through the snow and ice. And during that march home, I really call it a death march back to Canada, an additional 20 people were slain. During the march, women, 
babies. Even Reverend Williams' wife was killed by tomahawk after she fell into a river, got drenched, couldn't walk. She was going to freeze. She had given birth only weeks before, and she too was killed by a tomahawk strike. And so it was one of the greatest disasters in early New England history. And it lives on to this day in, in memory and myth and legend. Your book that we referenced earlier, Manhunt, which is going to become a uh, Apple Plus miniseries starting in the middle of March, starring Patton Oswalt and others, chasing Lincoln's killer, is a very well-known story. Is this story about what happened in Deerfield 320 years ago today a well-known story apart from our area? Or is this, for most people that are exposed to your book, an unknown piece of history? No, it, it's, it's completely unknown. Remember, this was a different America. This is not the pretty America of the Revolutionary War, the beautiful houses, beautiful New York and Boston, that sort of thing. This was a terrible, frightening time in New England in the late 1600s and early 1700s. It was a terrifying place to live because from the time of King Philip's War in 1675, the Bloody Book Massacre killed 70 Deerfield men who were transporting grain to supply troops during King Philip's War. A thousand natives surprised them and attacked them and killed them. And for the next quarter century after the Bloody Brook, the Indians would come down and occasionally raid Deerfield. People would be kidnapped from the fields. They would disappear. They would vanish. It was a time of superstition and myth and fear of witchcraft. For example, the old Indian house where the old Indian door was was protected by a, a horseshoe hanging above the front door. That wasn't for good luck. The horseshoe was made of iron, and the myth was a witch could not pass under iron. So they would protect the house from witches coming in. And if you look at the old Indian door, and anyone who goes to visit it this weekend at the PVMA Museum should look at the iron door latch, and you can find on that latch hex marks carved into the iron, additional hex marks to keep witches out of the house. So it was a time of fear and superstition. It was not a New England we know today. The revolutionary generation hadn't been born yet. George Washington, Ben Franklin, John Adams, none of them had been born. So even to them, the story of the Deerfield Massacre would have been a remote and very strange tale. We're speaking with James Swanson, who has a new book called The Deerfield Massacre, A Surprise Attack, A Forced March, and the Fight for Survival in Early America. The book is out this week. It commemorates the 320th anniversary of this piece of local history, which happened 320 years ago today. You tell the story through the lens of John Williams. Now, as much as Kalise and I love John Williams, the composer behind so many of our greatest film uh, soundtracks, this is not the same John Williams. Introduce us to the John Williams, who's uh, sort of the central character in your telling of this story. Yeah, Reverend John Williams is one of the great heroes of early New England history. He came to Deerfield, I believe, in 1686 and was the town's minister although it was interrupted by the raid and the captivity, was a town's minister for 46 years. And he moved to Deerfield when it was a dangerous place to live. He knew that there was danger of native attack. He knew that people were being kidnapped or scalped in the fields. And so it was brave of him to even move to Deerfield in the first place. And he was very much the leader of Deerfield. And he was a hero of the people in the town. And later he became one to all of New England because he had suffered great losses. Two of his infant children were murdered at their front door. They whirled them through the air and smashed their heads into the stone step and killed them instantly. Then John Williams had, and this is not widely known, there were slaves in Deerfield. John Williams owned two slaves, a woman named Parthena and her husband, Frank. And after they killed the two Williams children, the natives murdered Parthena at the doorstep. I'm sure because she was trying to protect the children. And then the next night, Frank was one of the captives. They murdered her husband, too. And then the next day, his wife was tomahawked to death when she fell in a river. And then he had to take care of his parishioners all the way. Aside from worrying about his other five children who were captured during the raid, he had to worry about his parishioners who needed his guidance. So it was William's mission, not only to care for himself and his surviving children, 
but to sustain all his parishioners who were captured with him. And then when they got to Canada, they were kept prisoner in many cases for nearly 1,000 days. And during that time, they were under constant pressure to give up their faith. The Jesuit priests who were up there in Canada wanted William so much to renounce his Protestant faith because they knew it would be a great prize and trophy to claim that they had won over the soul of an important Puritan minister. Another one of his children, Eunice, seven years old, was adopted by the Mohawks. She was brought into their tribe because one of the motives for the, the indigenous purpose of the raid was to capture people and make them join the tribes. Many of the Indians believed in a mourning war, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, where people of the tribe who might have died, might have been lost or been killed, would be replaced by young captives who would be raised as indigenous people and welcomed into the tribe. They weren't prisoners or captives once they joined the tribe. They were celebrated as well-wanted and desired members of the tribe. William saw his daughter several times during their captivity, and he could see day by day. She wasn't wearing European clothes anymore. She was forgetting to speak English. Shortly after her capture, she said to her father, Father, they're making me say prayers in Latin. Will this hurt me? And then she started to wear native garb. Her hair was greased back with bear grease in the native style. And so she gradually was lost to her New England heritage. Williams endured all of this for almost a thousand days. He was very heroic to try to keep his people together and inspire them to live and, and, and survive. And so when he was finally returned to Deerfield with a number of the captives, he got to work on his book, The Redeemed Captive Return to Zion. And it's a great book of early American life because it's partly an action adventure thriller, which is how my book begins. But then it's also a religious tract and writes about how he needed to sustain his faith in Protestantism and also his parishioners and not convert to the Catholic ways. It may sound quaint to us now. We may think, oh, they're all Christian. What difference does it make? It made a heck of a lot of difference in Deerfield in the early 1700s. I like to think of it as imagine the conflict or the war between communism and democracy in the 1950s during the Cold War. That same kind of animus existed between French Jesuit priests and Deerfield Protestants. In terms of the people viewing it at the time, this was a war for the souls of the people of Deerfield. And so John Williams was a key player in that, in that war. John Williams's account is one of the main accounts of, of these events. But who else wrote about surviving this? Not many people. There are essentially three or four brief, much briefer accounts. Williams wrote the only first-hand book of what it was like to go through it. We can find much of the material through the correspondence between French officials in Canada and between New England officials, because there was a rescue party from Hatfield, and those people wrote, wrote accounts. So the principal account is Reverend Williams himself. Uh, and also, in terms of, of the indigenous people's accounts, none of the indigenous participants in the raid ever wrote a book about what happened. Part of their tradition was oral history and legend and story told through artifacts and signs and symbols. And so it was harder to recover indigenous voices, which for centuries had been erased from history. The white colonists did this through the myth of the vanishing Indians. Well, they didn't vanish, they didn't go anywhere. And so it's very challenging and important to revive some of the indigenous people's voices and interpretations of the Deerfield Massacre also. It's their story too. It's just not the story of the white colonists. It's really a joint story of the Canadians, of the French, of the Catholics, of the indigenous people, and the blacks who were kept in Deerfield, often as slaves. The PVMA has done a great job of resurrecting these voices and giving due credit to all the other participants in the raid. We'll get into some of the more modern perspectives and what's changed about how we view this conflict with Ray Radigan and Lindsay Kruzlik of the Memorial Hall Museum. But up next, more with author James Swanson, who will compare the Deerfield Raid to contemporary events. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM.
We're speaking with James L. Swanson, who's got a new book, The Deerfield Massacre, A Surprise Attack, A Forced March, and the Fight for Survival in Early America. Today is the 320th anniversary of that event, and this Sunday at 2 p.m., James Swanson will be reading from the new book and signing books at Deerfield Academy. You mentioned how, you know, it might be hard for us to get into the minds of these early colonizers and the Protestants versus the Catholics and comparing it to capitalism versus communism. What it seems to really resonate with me contemporarily is the events of October 7th, where, and I want to preface it by saying, I don't believe that there is ever a good time for armed people to go and attack people who are just going about their daily lives and butchering Mm -hmm. them down. However, there is a huge amount of politics that are surrounding these events. Do you see a contemporary analog between the indigenous communities and also the French in this attack on what seems to be an unassuming and unsuspecting population to what has been going on in the Middle East over the last few months? Yes, there are, there are some parallels. But I, one of the most interesting things I found in researching the story, you know, it's now come down to be called the Deerfield Massacre. No one who lived through it called it a massacre. It's fascinating to me. It was not until a century later in 1804, the 100th anniversary, when the minister in Deerfield gave a sermon. And multiple times he used the phrase, the massacre, the massacre, the massacre. The people who survived it called it the raid, the attack. Some even called it the mischief in Deerfield. And only a century later, and then much more common into the mid-1880s, did the phrase, the Deerfield massacre, come into common parlance. It's so funny because neither the indigenous peoples nor the French nor the residents of Deerfield called it a massacre. Violence was a way of life in early America. The colonists could be as cruel to the indigenous people as they were to the colonists. There was someone uh, near Deerfield who suggested that the colonists hire savage dogs, giant mastiffs, to attack the Indians and tear them apart. And he said, well, they're nothing but wolves, so we should treat them like wolves. The colonists offered scalp bounties for Indian men, women, and children, and would pay money for the scalps of these people that were returned. And and so the savagery was often uniform and perpetrated by all parties. So it's really interesting that no one ever called it a massacre who lived through it. And to the French and to the natives in Canada, it was not an iconic event the way it was to the people of Deerfield. It was just another raid that needed to be perpetrated against the English colonists to push them back from the frontier. Are they using this reframing of it as a massacre, as a piece of propaganda then to to propel their conquest forward and their colonizing aspirations forward to to remember this and to view John Williams as this great hero in this way when there was brutal savagery on on the part of the Deerfield residents? And how does that fit in with the modern movement to go back to referring to it as a raid? instead of a massacre. I think we're midway there. I called it the Deerfield Massacre in the title of the book because that's how it's known and recognized by a modern audience. But later in the book, I do explain the background of how it became a massacre in the common linguistic heritage of the event. I partly give the, the indigenous point of view also to the event, which is very important. But compared to contemporary events, there is a similarity in that unsuspecting people were savagely attacked and horrible things were done to them. And many of them were taken captive and taken away from their families. And now we're involved in a situation where negotiations are underway to try to return more of them, to bring them back alive. And that's what happened in Deerfield. It took up to three years to bring all the people back. And many didn't come back. Many converted to Catholicism. Many married natives or married French. Nonetheless, there was a negotiation that went on for months and months and years and years to bring the people back. So there is an apparent resonance of the surprise attack the taking of captives, the killing of people, the merciless savagery. Many of those themes express themselves in, in the, the Deerfield raid. 
Do you feel that in your research you've found on both the side of the colonists and of the French themselves that the role of the French in this event is kind of downplayed? It is. It is. The truth is the Indians and the French were allies. The French did not consider themselves the masters or controllers of the natives. And the natives certainly didn't think that. In the old days, it was the Indians were just the Indians, the dangerous people from the forest. But of course, people didn't realize it, many tribes, there's Abnakis, Hurons, Iroquois, Pentecost. Each tribe had its own identity and its own purposes and motives for participating in the raid. You're right. The role or culpability of the French has been downplayed, I think, a little bit in history. There are only about 30 or 40 French who participated in the raid, and the rest of the 200, 250 raiders were all indigenous peoples. And so visibly, the French were less present during the raid than the natives were. We're speaking with James L. Swanson, who's got a new book, The Deerfield Massacre, A Surprise Attack, A Forced March in the Fight for Survival in Early America. Today is the 320th anniversary of that event. And this Sunday at 2 p.m., James Swanson will be reading from the new book and signing books at Deerfield Academy, just a uh, short ways away from where all this happened. You know, there's the old adage that if those who don't learn history are, are doomed to repeat it. And as we've heard from you, that there is this contemporary analog in some ways of what's going Going on in Gaza. If there's a lesson from this uh, moment in history for now, what do you think that lesson might be? Well, one of the lessons is we can't forget the native voices. In the 1880s and 1890s, George Sheldon, one of the heroes of Deerfield, antiquarian in chief of Deerfield, who founded the museum there, at the heyday of the colonial revival in America, the Indians were viewed as savages, the colonists were viewed as the heroes of the story, and there was no desire or need to bring in native voices. George Selden was interested in ancient history and the ancestors. He didn't want to hear about European immigrants to Deerfield, Polish immigrants, Italian immigrants. He didn't want to give voice to the natives. And so George Selden was a great historian. He saved many things from destruction, many documents, books, relics. But his, his, his weakness was that he did not respect the Native American aspect of the story. He would excavate graves of bones of indigenous people promiscuously and not keep proper records, his view was that the Indians were a vanishing race. And that was very much the view in New England in the 1850s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. They were almost viewed with antiquarian interest, as though they're gone, they're vanished, we conquered them. So now it's charming to appropriate their culture for products, for toys, for brand names, for trademarks, for movies, for films. And so I, I cover that in the book also, the appropriation of Native American imagery by the triumphant colonists, and which occurred th throughout history. In fact, Thomas Edison made a silent film in Deerfield called Anaka's Vow. And so, of course, the Indians were portrayed as servants of the whites, wanting to help the whites and save them from Native attacks. That film survives. Uh, of course, no Indians were allowed to act in the film. Of course not. They put putty on to make hooked noses, painted their faces red. Red washing actually happened during the time of the American Revolution. The perpetrators of the Boston Tea Party painted their faces red to impersonate Indians. And so the Edison film was not the first time. Anako plays the Indian chief, whose father was killed during King Philip's War, during the Bloody Brook Massacre, trying to protect the white colonists from the Indian attack. And then in his dying breath, the chief made his son Anako swear to always protect and guide the white man. It portrays Anako, the chief, offering to help save the white maiden from torture and death at the hands of the Indians. And he said, I invoke the, the right of the ancient chief to save this woman. I shall die in her place. And then he's saved. And there's a moment where it said, in his breast, for a moment, did Anako have a longing for the white maiden. But then, pure man that he was, he drove that out of his mind. Well, I say in the book, a true Hollywood ending for this would have been 
Anako runs away with the woman and she leaves behind her boring Protestant stolid <laughs> boyfriend. I mean, the Puritans don't throw so good I, parties I try, as far as I, I know, to... unless they're burning someone. Yeah, which uh, which John Williams kind of yes. did. He did hang and, somebody like a la the uh, Salem witch trials here true. in Deerfield. That yeah, is true. As your book goes into, yes. For Sarah Smith, yeah, I think her ghost still haunts Deerfield. In the book, you'll read about how Don Friary, former head president of historic Deerfield, once connected a seance in a house on the street in Deerfield, and apparently a ghost draws. I've covered that story in the book. It's just an amusing sidebar. Now you want to read the book, don't you? <laughs> With the right, right. Yeah. So I really try to cover the life of the massacre for the 320 years after it happened. But whenever I go to Deerfield, I do go to the old burying ground to visit the graves of Eunice and John Williams. And they're quite different because they were done at different times. The grave for Eunice, uh, she was brought back to Deerfield after she was tomahawked to death and she was buried in Deerfield. Her gravestone says, Eunice Williams, faithful consort of Reverend Williams, etc., etc., and said, felled by ye rage of ye barbarous enemy. John Williams' grave from 1729, when he died 25 years after the massacre, says, here lies the body of the Reverend John Williams, good and faithful pastor of this place. Hmm. And it's so interesting that, that their gravestones themselves evoke different memories or me ways of remembering or interpreting the Deerfield Massacre or the Deerfield Raid or whatever we, we decide ultimately we, we call it. That massacre, that raid was 320 years ago today in Deerfield. And James Swanson has a new book about it called The Deerfield Massacre. And this Sunday, in conjunction with the Pecumtuck Valley Memorial Association, there's a free lecture and book signing. James Swanson, thanks so much for spending so much time with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And dare I say, happy 320th? I don't know if happy is the right <laughs> I don't word. Know if happy is the right word. <laughs> <laughs> happy commemoration. There, there we, we go. go. And there's the other John Williams with Raiders. <laughs> History itself can change with the times, however. And we'll see how it can do that by broadening the lens which, with which we look at it with Ray Radigan and Lindsay Kruzlik of Deerfield's Memorial Hall Museum up next. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Ta-ha. It's interesting because the word massacre, you know, doesn't really have a, you know, set definition of, you know, number of casualties or anything like that. You know, the Boston Massacre was five people and some pretty good PR on Paul Revere's part. You know, the Deerfield Massacre of 46 people were killed. It was called a massacre for a long time. We now call it a raid. I'm Ray Radigan. I'm the curator and assistant director here at Memorial Hall. My name is Lindsay Kruzlik. I'm the assistant curator at Memorial Hall Museum. I didn't realize how Leap Day has been around for so long. I guess I yeah. thought it was more of a modern scientific endeavor. No. <laughs> but it's interesting that Leap Day, February 29th, 1704, 230 years ago. 320 years Three, Sorry, I knew. I got the, all the numbers right. Wrong order. I do the math in this one. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> Leap Day, 320 years ago, here in Deerfield was the site of an historic event that has been chronicled in the book by the author we just spoke to, and you can see the actual history come alive here at Memorial Hall Museum. What are we looking at right here in front of us? We call it the door. I'm doing air quotes around the door because it's far and away the most important thing we have. And this was the front door of the old Sheldon House. Well, it wasn't the old Sheldon House back then. It was just the Sheldon House. <laughs> it was, as James probably mentioned, it was one of the 
last ones to be attacked. Uh, and the door had previously been fortified. There are boards going vertically on the front and horizontally on the back. And it's studded with, you know, about a thousand nails in the front, which was the intention was to blunt the attack of an axe because they knew they were living on the frontier. They knew that an attack was going to come. Of course, they didn't know when. But when it did come, the door famously withstood the uh, the blows of the axe. And we still have, you can still see the scars in the door from 320 years ago and the hole that they were able to chop through the door. Um, while they never did get through this door, it did famously hold. They did put a musket through the door and basically shot blindly, but did end up uh, hitting and killing Hannah Sheldon, who is the mother of the family. This museum has been around for a long time. Your mission, it seems like here, is to put it in a different type of historical context, giving a, a broader, richer story from different perspectives. Our goal was to make sure that we held a complete story of the Raiden of the Door, and we wanted it from not just the English colonial perspective, but we also wanted it from the French and the indigenous partners, as well as the enslaved Africans that were here at the time as well. So what we are hoping to do is be able to create this story that had multiple different perspectives. We hold this door as this sign of perseverance and this sign of the American way of, you know, stand up to your enemies and whatnot. But some of the partners that were around during this raid don't hold that same story. Thoughts of pain instead of the American dream and whatnot. And those are important stories that we need to tell because they haven't always been told. Actually, one of the items we have in our museum is the the Deerfield Bell sculpture, which tells the story of this legend of why maybe some of the indigenous partners came to attack Deerfield. And one of it was to gather a bell that apparently the residents of Deerfield had maybe taken or stolen or whatnot. Even though it's one of those oral traditions that the indigenous partners shared down through their centuries, it gives an idea that there was a reason. And we don't know what the reason was. We, we have our idea based on the fact that Deerfield was the most Western and Northern settlement in the Massachusetts Bay Colony at the time. And that would have decreased the amount of the colonial area. But there was no real thought process of why specifically the Mohawks came in or the, the Kaniakahaka people or the, the Wabanaki and the, the Huron people. So uh, it's again trying to get our different perspectives and us showcasing this Deerfield Bell sculpture kind of gives an idea of another reason why these things happen. It's interesting how we can see historically how historic Deerfield, how Memorial Hall has presented this raid. Can you talk a little bit about what's on display over here with the t-shirt and the uh, the action, action figure? <laughs> yes, yeah, so like I said, one of the things that we want to do is talk about the uh, the aftermath and the legacy of the attack. You know, so the, the door itself, you know, stayed on the house, the, the Sheldon house for 144 years, then the house was torn down. Uh, they had the, at least had the foresight to save the door. And that's been preserved in Memorial Hall ever since we opened in 1880. But the legacy of the house has really grown even after it was demolished in 1848. And it's appeared on everything from the, the town seal of the town of Deerfield to all sorts of, you know, books. It's in coloring books. Uh, like you said, we have action figures from, I don't know the exact year, but they were in the, I think the early 90s. And they are, um, I would say, highly insensitive. Yes. <laughs> I would agree. To put it nicely. <laughs> that, Tell, is like, that is a kindness. 
tell us why some people might find them highly insensitive. Well, I mean, there are two action figures. One is Reverend John Williams, who looks like a Puritan colonist with double barrels loaded and ready to go. He is opposed by the absolute most stereotypical version of a Native American you could possibly imagine. <laughs> Neither of which is even close to historically accurate. For starters, <laughs> the attack was in the dead of winter and they climbed the snow to get in and this guy's not even wearing a shirt. John Williams doesn't look bundled up either. <laughs> no, not so much. No. He was the first one captured in the attack. He, <laughs> he, did not, he did not get off a shot. But he's being presented by this manufacturing toy company in the 90s as the great hero of... Absolutely. He did eventually return, so I mean, like, he didn't... But he, he did get captured. He got first. captured. Yeah. Yes. I think our former president said something about heroes getting captured. He's a war hero because he was captured. I like people that weren't captured, okay? I hate to tell you. Also, uh, dual wielding with, with guns in for the time, with the guns that he's holding, I think maybe no. Probably not. Yeah. Probably <laughs> but not. again, like Ray had just said, like, the indigenous partners that were attacking the door had muskets. But not according to our action yeah. figures. Um, we're with Ray and Lindsay at Memorial Hall in Deerfield, where 320 years ago today was this historic event that we're looking back on. Many of the peoples that were part of the indigenous raid, along with the French, exist today. How have you incorporated them and their communities into the storytelling that you're doing here at Memorial Hall? Knowing that we wanted to do many different perspectives, we have a a sort of partnership with lots of different members of different indigenous nations. And I know, based upon specifically the fact that we're pairing our preview of our exhibit, because our museum actually isn't open until May, we're previewing our exhibit with James Swanson, Marge Brujak, who is a part of the Abenaki Nation, which was one of the um, nations that consisted during the raid or whatever. She actually um, read the book and she gave us some initial thoughts about the different artifacts that we had here because there was a, a new law that passed this based upon new, the new NAGPRA yep she uh, she is consulting with us on you know we have a whole indigenous gallery and she's consulting with us among you know many other partners I mean everything that's in that gallery has been um, previously approved under the um, previous law but since the NAGPRA was updated uh, the new regulations went into effect this year we're taking a deep dive and reevaluating everything we have to make sure you know not only that it meets the letter of the law but it meets the intent of the law as well you can see NEPM's Nancy Cohen's reportage on this on our NEPM website. I was going to say that also. Also, we talked to her about it. It's really good. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's good and it's it's much needed and it's it's interesting to see this progression. You know, we worked with, there were six different groups involved in the attack, two, you know, on the Deerfield resident side and four on the raiding party side. And we've reached out to representatives, you know, scholars from all of those groups today to get their insights on what the raid means to them and how it's viewed in their communities and cultures today. And specifically the door, you know, it's laden with meaning for some, and for others, they said either we're not even aware of this door, or <laughs> so, so, for some, it's like, oh yeah, the door. That was just something we left behind. Now, I grew up in the area, and this is where we came on field trips. Yeah, we learned about American history and what this door meant when I was seven and eight years old. Mm -hmm. And again, we reached out to these scholars, and they're like, what, what, what was what? this? What door? What? The door. Oh, the door. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Do you but mean the doors? <laughs> oh, you're gonna drop them in. <laughs> Yes, I am. Break off to the other side. When did the door stop being the Indian door? Uh, about a week ago. <laughs> <laughs> really? 
Well, it's it's tough because you know it's been known as the old Indian house and the old Indian house door for you know three hundred plus years, and we did want to move away from that, and we looked at you know what other language can we use, and we settled on the old Sheldon house. You know, we wanted to go with the Sheldon house, but unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, there already is a Sheldon house in Deerfield. It's yeah. Not the also, same there's house. a guy named John Sheldon who's an incredible guitar player who lives in the area too. So we don't want to confuse. Is that, that. two musicians already? That's good. <laughs> I like the gravestones on the walls. <laughs> oh, our plaques! That's a fun story too. The the, the plaques. So the yeah, the room we're sitting in is partially surrounded by these old you know marble plaques honoring a lot of the early settlers of Deerfield in the Deerfield area, and they were actually done in the 1880s as a fundraiser for the museum when it was just getting up and running. They reached out to, or a lot of them were still here, but the families of descendants of the early settlers and said, you know, do you want to put up a plaque to memorialize, because we are Memorial Hall, to memorialize your ancestors who were possibly injured or captured or killed in early attacks. And many of them did. And that's why some of them, the plaques themselves are different sizes. You know, some of them could afford a large plaque. Others could afford a much smaller plaque. You know, there's one from Marshall Field of the Field department store in Chicago. He, of course, could afford a large one and put his name in large <laughs> letters on it. <laughs> one was done by um, a former, or at the time, vice president of the United States, uh, Levi Parsons Morton, who's kind of been lost to history and also really... I had no idea. He got, uh, he got mixed up in the whole Tammany Hall thing in New York. Uh, so, yeah, not the, not, not the best legacy. But, uh, but what's interesting about the, all these plaques is, you know, they're not historically vetted. They, they let the families... checked. No. <laughs> they let the families put up whatever they wanted. And which, you know, really leads to, you know, whose stories are and aren't being told. And almost all of the names are the old white ancestors placed by their descendants. There is, I think, one or two um, indigenous names on there. Uh, there are two uh, enslaved Africans who are named, um, not by a descendant, but by someone who actually had no... Five dollars, I think. Yes, I think it was five dollars to put up a small plaque. Mm -hmm. So he wanted them recognized. But not only that, whose names are and aren't included, but the language that was permissible in the 1880s, in some cases, is not what we would use today. Mm -hmm. So my predecessor, the previous curator here, wanted to find a way, you know, these are literally carved in stone. You can't exactly erase them. No. Nor would we want to erase them. Ex exactly, because right. it is a historical record. So what she did, which I think is a fantastic idea, you know, she did the research, you know, talked to whoever the, you know, appropriate groups were to find out what, you know, was the proper and accepted language and had that reprinted on a piece of fabric, you know, made it look like marble. And so it's hung in front of the plaque in a couple of cases. So you can see, you know, what's shown right now, if you walk by is what's accepted today. But if you lift it, you can see the previously accepted language. Uh -huh. So you can understand oh, how, how language changes over time. Gotcha. That's I, cool. I know. I looked at that one big one over there and I was like, it doesn't, that one doesn't look like stone, but now it's I see. It's got a big ribbon on it. I see <laughs> the ribbon now. It all makes sense. A big unveil. A big yes. red yeah. ribbon. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we actually, not we, but like the Memorial Hall ended up uh, sponsoring one for the Pocomtucks, which are the original inhabitants of this area. And that yes. one's in stone. We did that. And we also did one um, for the local black population. This was done in the late 1990s. And theirs is actually carved in wood. Yeah, I was noticing the, the <laughs> plaque with... Uh, drum and cowrie. I'm like, what about Deerfield has cowrie shells on it? 
Interestingly, at the time they were doing this, we just talked about the issues with language, and they specifically said we don't want any words because words change. What's acceptable changes over time. Mm. So they wanted strictly the symbology of, you know, the drum in the center, the broken chain, the cowrie shells. It's carved out of mahogany. So they, they wanted symbols that will stand the test of time much better than words will. We're with Ray and Lindsay at Memorial Hall in Deerfield talking about the 320-year-old Deerfield raid that happened 320 years ago today. I know that you worked with PRX, which is Public Radio International, a podcasting storytelling endeavor to help better incorporate some audio into this. How did that um, experience help you give more vibrancy to the storytelling? Hold on. Let's start with why did you want to incorporate that into the museum? We wanted to find a way to reach all sorts of audiences, not just the local people or the people that love history, but we want to have a way that can incorporate maybe a younger audience or people that learn in different ways. So when this PRX Mass Humanities Storytelling grant came up, we thought of a way to be able to record how knowledgeable and funny Ray and I are and be able to put it into a uh, almost an audio guide. We had a, a great experience. We learned a lot. We realized that we know so much. We recorded hours <laughs> of us talking just like this about what does this mean? What does this look like? And we recorded ourselves and had to finagle it down to minuscule amounts of time. And we worked with, like I said, PRX, who actually did research into what these audio guides kind of look like. There's a limit when you don't want to stand anymore and you don't <laughs> want to listen anymore. And we realized that we aren't there yet. <laughs> we can't. <laughs> like, we could probably do a podcast for three, four hours worth of this stuff, but like, maybe that's not what people want to hear. So, we need to do a little bit more research in how that works. But we have a really great foundation. We're really excited to hopefully be able to do something like that. Memorial Hall technically not open right now. There is a preview, though, uh, of what's to come and what we're experiencing here right now at Memorial Hall this Sunday. Tell us about what's going to happen when on Sunday. Yeah, so on Sunday, you know, to mark the anniversary, which technically is today, uh, to mark the anniversary, we are going to be previewing our new exhibit, which we've been talking about. We'll be open from 11 to uh, 1.30 on Sunday afternoon. People are welcome to come in and see not only the exhibit, the bulk of the museum will be open if you want to you know, explore beyond this. We've got uh, 19 galleries. And then we're going to be bringing everyone. We'll actually be having a shuttle bus to the Hess Center, which is just uh, down the street on the campus of Deerfield Academy, uh, where James Swanson will be giving his talk on his new book, signing books. And then after that, uh, if you didn't get a chance to come over or if you didn't get a chance to see everything, we'll be open again from 3.30 to 4.30. Now I kind of want to look at the other room. Yeah, I want to go look all over the place now. Yeah. So that's where you're from. Okay. Yeah, when the Let's do we'll, it. we'll beat the crowds. James Swanson's talk about his latest book on the Deerfield Raid takes place this Sunday, March 3rd at 1 p.m. Find more information at memorialhalldeerfield.org slash events. The museum is open before and after the talk, so you can go and see the stuff that we saw. Tomorrow on The Fabulous 413, we'll welcome the return of the Northampton Record Fair with Justin Cohen, a.k.a. local DJ legend Studebaker Hawk. We'll celebrate Dr. Seuss's birthday at Springfield Museums. We'll drink Croatian wine with an actual winemaker for the Wine Thunderdome at Deer Bottle Shop in Lenox. And we'll have live music Friday with the sweet harmonies of eavesdrop playing in Holyoke this weekend. Thanks to the awesome, fabulous 413 tech team for making this happen. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. We'll see you tomorrow on the fabulous 413. Leap all day. Uh-huh.